You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuts. All right, friends. Hey, a rare treat. Uh, for a couple of reasons. It's very unusual that I have more than one guest at a time on the show. We have two guests today. In the past, it's always been a husband and wife. This time, I've got Bliss Spiller and Wynn Collier. Uh, one of those names you're probably better known than the other one. Bliss, uh, you're not yet notorious, although in some circles. <laughs> yeah, probably in some circles, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's start with Wynn Collier. Many of you probably know Wynn as the author of the Eugene Peterson biography, um, a burning in my bones. Wynn is currently um, the professor at Western Seminary, uh, where he he has the Eugene Peterson Center. But he was also the founding pastor of All Souls, All Souls Church in Charlottesville. And about a year ago, Wynn transitioned out of that, moved to Michigan to be a professor at Western Seminary, and Bliss came in as the successor to the founding pastor, which means that Bliss came in after a beloved pastor left. And he immediately fell into the hands of COVID and is leading uh, this wonderful church as the new leader. And as many of you know, I'm, I'm toward the end of my own transition uh, leading our church. So I'm fascinated by leadership transition. Uh, I also read Wynn's book a couple of months ago and um, didn't expect it to be recreational reading. I think in my mind, mentally, I'd put that book down as like uh, church reading, but it just was fun, Wynn, just... From the first page, uh, when writes fiction and nonfiction, and and all of that skill came through in the book. So, with that long and convoluted introduction, Win and Bliss, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having us. This is this is a unique treat. Yeah, well, it's a real joy. I told my wife this morning it's one of those podcasts that I want to listen to. I don't know if I want to be on, but uh, yeah, no, it's a it's a real joy to be here. Well, in full disclosure, Wynn and I just met, but Bliss and I, I, I can't say we go way back, Bliss, but we know a freakish amount about each other because uh, <laughs> Bliss has actually gone through all of the training to be certified in the Managing Leadership Anxiety Tools. So we spent some time together in Breckenridge and um, Bliss was one of the very first people when I first started figuring out what to do with a book that we were in book clubs together and stuff. So yeah, this is a treat for me. So why don't we begin by talking about uh, leadership transition. It, it, it's something that's so difficult in churches, even when it's done well. When I, w- I would love to start with you, um, how did you know it was time for you to transition into your next vocation? That's uh, such a deep question. It was not something I expected at all. And my intention had been to retire from All Souls. But I think uh, a primary thing was... Um, when this opportunity came and it felt like this um, invitation to come to Western, I really care deeply about pastors and the health of pastors and what it means to be a pastor in our time. And uh, writing is a big part of my life. And um, there was this invitation to come and, and steward the, the work of Eugene, who was a pastor to me and to help serve other pastors and to have more time for writing and, it just felt like the conflation of all these things. I think there was another piece too. There were some, some things that I saw on the horizon for all souls that seemed, that seemed like a, a direction that God would 
have the church move toward. And it seemed clear to me. And looking back on it now, I don't think I felt that I had the the energy, the capacity, the the wherewithal to do it. So, and I remember reading in one of Eugene's letters, you know, he was he was really well known for telling pastors to stay put. Um, but he gave three reasons in one letter that he thought was a good reason for pastors to move on. And one of them was, when you just feel like where the church needs to go, you don't have the capacity to take them there, uh, to go with them. And so I think those things together, and then some family dynamics of just needing a, after being in ministry for 25 years and um, kind of always start up, or as we were talking a few minutes ago, shutting down, um, it just, we needed a new, a new space. Yeah. And how old was All Souls when you stepped down? Uh, 12 years. Yeah. Okay. I would love to hear, you know, we have so many church planters that listen to this show. I'd love to hear just one era in that 12 years where you wondered if the church would make it, which of course may not be true, but in so many church plants, there's, there's at least one point where you wonder, does anything come to mind for you? Only one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, probably year three, we were meeting in uh, a small student ministry art space near the University of Virginia, and it just felt like we were in mud. Um, and it also, um, we had the great joy of having a lot of people come to All Souls that were kind of on their way out of the church or first step on the way back into the church or trying to figure out what they thought about this whole God thing. And there was a, a fair bit of, um, reticence and, um, cynicism. And I remember, uh, Brendan, one of the other pastors and I just praying, asking God, please, we want all the cynics, but please send us a few people that aren't cynics. Right. Right. Um, few people that aren't just on fumes, um, angry at God in the world. And that's the anger is not really true, but just, um, and God did it. God brought some really eager, hopeful people who were just ready to love and serve. And, and, uh, it was such a gift. Yeah. And then from when you announced your transition to when you actually transitioned out, what was that time period? Well, that was such an odd thing because we came back from from Western Seminary in Holland, Michigan, um, on the trip where we were needing to make a decision, and we were flying back through Philadelphia and uh, sitting there in in the airport watching President Trump say that they were closing the border to China. And uh, the next night when we landed, um, we, we were meeting with our leadership team to say, "Hey, we're going to be going on to Zoom and." At that point, I thought, well, let's wait a month, you know, wait this out, and then I'll tell the church. And um, obviously, that didn't happen. So it was uh, it was uh, really difficult for me because I, I just couldn't imagine telling our church on Zoom that we were we were we were leaving. But I think, if I remember correctly, we told the church in late May, and then had from then until August when we left. Yeah. So then Bliss, where does your story intersect with this? How do you know when and how did you know of this opening? 
Yeah, so we had lived previously in Charlottesville from 2012 to 2014. I had been on staff at a church here. And then we had actually left and moved to the D.C. area to plant a church. Um, And so we uh, closed down that church in 2019, moved back to Charlottesville to take an interim role. And in the middle of the pandemic, that interim role came to an end. And so we began to look and and try to decide and discern where we were going to be going next. And Around that time, we had heard that that Wynn was going to be leaving. Um, I had knew of Wynn. I had knew of All Souls because we had lived in, in Charlottesville previous. But I actually think when until I think it was like a week before y'all were moving that you and I had the chance to sit down for the first time at Starbucks. And Wynn must have known, the Spirit must have told him my love language because Wynn showed up with a with a Fleming Rutledge book and said, hey, do you like Fleming Rutledge? Do you like free books? And I said, I like I like both. Um, and the right it had, I, like, yeah, that's, must a, that's have. a Rorschach <laughs> test right there. Uh, right. Uh, so we, you know, we, so we had heard about Wynn's departure and I remember my wife looking at me and going, would you ever think about applying there? And I was like, I, I don't know. I don't know. We were a little bit reeling from having to, to look for a work and all those things. And so then all of a sudden we just had, I think three or four different friends in town who knew our situation weren't talking with one another who each individually reached out and said, Hey, did you hear all souls is looking for a senior pastor? I think you should apply. Um, and then one of our current elders, um, I had met him, gosh, probably 10 years ago. And he was the the kind of final one to reach out and go, Hey, I think, I think you should apply. And so we did. And so we applied, I think it was at the very end of that August and began the uh, the interview process and conversations and and was called to be senior pastor this past January. So, yeah. Yeah, so you're 8 months in. Yeah. Almost 9. You like it to almost nine. girl when when you first started <laughs> the church, you want to round up how long it's been. So almost 9 months. Almost 9 months there you go. Yeah, so so bliss that church in DC that closed. Um boy, common common story. How much of that do you carry into lead pastoring again? Uh, any concerns? Like, do you approach lead pastoring again? Like, oh man, it didn't go well the first time, or is that not how you see the DC church? Uh, no, I definitely think that there are goodness there are echoes of that. I mean, I think that we had done and have done a lot of work and healing and processing around. Yeah, where where our failures were and where there was growth that was needed. And some of it was just also completely out of our hands in, in so many ways. I will say I enjoyed a season of not being the senior pastor, of not being the lead guy and the sort of first chair and really enjoyed that. And I think that was actually one of our biggest hesitations was stepping back into that, um, especially in a season like we're in with COVID and seeing a beloved pastor you know, move on, like all of those things. I think those sort of formed out some of our, some of our hesitations with that. But I, I think, the, and this is one of those things that we've just grown even in eight months that we have just so loved and appreciated about All Souls is we were able to, on the very front end, to be really honest with those hesitations with the elders. I think I even remember listing off some of the hesitations with Wynn and Wynn was like, I think you should include those in the cover letter. And so I did. It was like, I, I let off with like, hey, this is going to be a really different cover letter, but here are some of the hesitations I have Here's even when you look at my resume, it's going to feel like it's not a good fit. But here are some of the questions we've been sitting with and some of the shifts that have happened. And and the community has been really receptive and really inviting. And just, yeah. So in, in some ways, yes, I don't know how we wouldn't carry those in with us. And um, But I'm also really grateful for both the healing and the work that we've done um, 
with God to be able to step into a place just in some ways, knowing in our bones who God has called us to be and who we are and to step into a place. Um, I described it recently to a friend. What I love so much about all souls is, and I don't, and I don't know how you create this. Like, I just don't know. You can't, I don't think you can give 12 steps to here's how you create a culture and an environment like this of a place that comes in and goes, Hey, we love you for you. We've, we believe you're, you're here because of who you are. And we're just excited for whatever God has for us as a community in part for how he has shaped and formed and formed you. And that's just something that we had never experienced before and are, and are really grateful for. So yeah, a little bit of a long winded answer, but that's a, it's a, it's a yes and a no with what we carry in with us. Yeah. And while you're on the microphone there, Bliss, like you come into an established church, 12 years, a beloved pastor. How do you figure out what the culture is? Culture is one of those words that's kind of elusive. Sometimes you accidentally step on it in your best intention. How do you navigate, especially in COVID? Okay, what's the culture of this church? What's the DNA? What do they care about most? How do you discern that? Yeah. And some of this is, you know, it's kind of funny. Early on, we realized that for every question I asked, there were two answers. Well, here's what, you know, here's what we do and here's who we are not in COVID, but here's who we are. Here's what we do in COVID. And so it was even sort of early on identifying that. But honestly, I think just to, to answer this one a little bit more, a little more shortly, was just a lot of stories and was, a, was listening and asking questions around the story that God had been writing there. Um, when I, I remember at one point sitting down for two days with some of the leaders and essentially doing a geneogram of the church and just going back to who were some of the, the central people and the roles that they played and their stories and hearing their stories and beginning to just sort of just do a lot of listening and a lot of being curious about, okay, well, why do we do this? And what's the story behind this? And, um, yeah, that's been a really, it's actually been a really lovely way to just sit across the Zoom screen from a lot of women and from a lot of men in this community and just listening to a lot of stories about who we are and why we are the way we are and, and those things. So, hmm. And then when, as you're transitioning out, uh, what do you think is one of the most important things for the transitioning pastor to make sure is set up for the next person? I think it'd be really hard to do that well if if you haven't pastored at least pretty well, um, because I think it would require a lot of letting go, um, a lot of blessing of the community, um, blessing what's to come. Um, and if you haven't tried at least to do that along the way, I think that would be really, really hard to make that happen in the last six months. But I think there's a temptation to 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 want to hold on because of our you know ego or um but and, and maybe that's even accentuated when you're the first pastor the church had and some of the people only knew you as their pastor um but I think just really wanting God's heart for that church wanting wanting goodness um I mean I love all souls and I am so so happy and thrilled that they have called an actual pastor to be their pastor. Um, and, um, I'm so grateful for Bliss's heart and his, his mind, his eagerness, his, the way he sees the world. And, um, I think just blessing that and naming that and helping the church to, to trust God. And yeah, I mean, to grieve what, 
what needs to be grieved is the relationships, but this is God's story. It's always been God's story and, and God's not finished. I, I told a number of people what I was looking forward to and, and regretting at the same time was, you know, a decade from now when I get to visit back or get stories and hear of things that All Souls is doing. And I'm like, man, why didn't I get to be part of that? I wanted to be part of that. I, I hope that, I hope that happens. I believe it will. Yeah. Wins, what's one thing you miss about being a local church pastor versus your current vocation? I, I mean, I miss leading the Eucharist. I do miss preaching regularly to people that you know, you know, their stories. You, um, you know, Marilyn Robinson talks about preaching being one side of a, of a good conversation. And uh, I, I do like the way you worded that question because I am still very much a pastor. Um, I'm just pastoring in a different sort of way. Um, and that's important for me because it wasn't and isn't a job, but it's, it's a, it's a way of life. And I miss some of those relationships. I miss being in the thick of things with people. I, I have a friend who, um, he wrote a book a few years ago and it really got big and he, he found himself speaking one time to a lot of large attendance churches and, uh, he'd go away, speak for 30 minutes, come back with a fairly big paycheck and it was really chipping away at his faith because he spent most of his time in the green room of these larger churches. And this is a generalization, so that means obviously it's not always true, but many times the staff in the green room or the band were pretty cynical. They would crack jokes. And and uh, when we were talking about our doubt, because he and I both had quite a significant doubt journey as part of our faith. Um, so we kind of trade our doubt stories. I, I said, what struck me, it didn't occur to me until I was hearing his journey. I was like, oh, well, my doubt is tremendously assuaged by serving Eucharist every week to Jack Paul and to, you know, like these everyday humans who love the church and love each other. There's not that that jaded cynicism. And that was his majority experience in churches. Yeah, I just that, that's what occurred to me when you answered that. What, what about when something that, boy, you don't really miss it at all, like... Something that you're like, no, I'm glad that's done. I don't like running the church. Um, I don't miss that. I don't miss the budget meetings or I think I also don't miss, uh, given kind of the way my personality works in our moment, I don't, I don't miss feeling like I'm sometimes a lightning rod for everyone else's anxiety. The sense that whatever the grievance is or whatever you're reacting to, while it's not really about me, that I somehow often became the the person to whom it was directed. And, uh, as part of my story was learning that I couldn't fix that. Um, but man, I sure tried. Right. And it wore me out. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. What we call it in our parlance is you caught the anxiety, Yeah. which is very easy to do. Yeah. So you don't hold a spreadsheet shaped hole in your heart. <laughs> I uh, do not. Uh, okay. Yeah. All right. So bliss, now you're in the, the, the lead chair. Um, what do you miss about being a second chair leader? Not being the lightning rod. Yeah, that's probably the not be yeah, not being the lightning rod. I mean, that's that is part. I, I heard it put once. Um, right, because like I, I know I know when did this, and and I do as well. Like we'll wear a clerical collar on Sunday mornings, and I remember it being described one time that the clerical collar becomes that projection screen for everyone's anxieties, pains in which they, in which they sort of direct it. And I think you know one of the I always I always saw in in the years in which I was the second chair leader, that though I'm not taking 
those shots and absorbing those that to come alongside that leader and behind them to support and to care. And so then to step back into that. Um, yeah. So I think that's, I think that's one of the things that I'll, I'll miss about not being second chair is, is that. Yeah. And then what are you loving about it? Oh, I, I, I think, you know, even for being in a season that feels like we're surrounded by nothing but death, um, there is, there is still so much that we're getting to watch the spirit do. And I think being able to, to step in and in some ways you get a, a front row seat, a front row seat that a lot of other people don't get and sitting in on the stories of both immense pain, but also in the midst of that pain, the presence of God with them in a way that it's just you, a lot of people don't get to hear those stories um, and a lot of people don't get to witness firsthand just the story that God's writing, that I'm not writing, that when wasn't writing, that no one else was writing and that God is writing. And just to get to see that, um, yeah, it, it's really kind of hard to fully put into words, but to, to be able to be present with people in those moments, to, to be a witness to, to what God's doing is, is like nothing else I've ever done. Yeah. And, and when Wynn mentioned missing preaching to the same people each week, there's something attached to that, right? Like the, the cure of souls and people letting you into their life. And then you stand before them at some point and you're looking at those people that you may have met with that week, you know, over the months and years becomes an incredibly holy experience. Yeah. I, I knew when I'd ask you guys both on the show, there were three things that we could talk about that would take an hour each. And so I'm, I feel that I'm moving so quickly, but I wanted to talk to you guys about preaching and communication because you guys are both craftsmen and you love the craft of good communication. When I, I, I'm sure you've heard this. I know I, I shot you some tweets about it. Um, the way you wrote the Peterson book was just so beautifully done. It just it, it had a beauty to it uh, that isn't always evident in some Christian books. Like we get a little too didactic. But you definitely took us on a what felt to me like a magical journey. Bliss, yeah, I remember as we were getting to know each other, some of the things that you would post, your own musings, some of the things you'd find. Um, who do you like to look to who you think is just a, a craftsman or a craftswoman? Like you mentioned Fleming Rutledge. I think Marilyn Robinson just got snuck in to our conversation. I'm feeling compelled to mention Fred Beekner to me. Just, I don't know where I'd be without him. Who do you guys want to talk about that you enjoy reading or hearing that just really move you? I mean, I think, right, some of my favorite preachers are women and men that some people have never heard of. Right. And there's part of me that I kind of want to keep it that way. I mean, I think there's um, <laughs> there's even the a few people band. at All the indie band, there's a, there's a few people at All Souls who every single time that they stand up to preach, it's just... I just find myself going, I can't believe oh, just to sit under that has been really, has been really wonderful. Um, I think for me, one of the, one of the people that comes to mind is an English poet uh, who's still alive, Malcolm Geit, uh, who is part of the church of England. He's a poet and a priest and he writes incredible poetry, um, but also have gotten to hear him preach quite a few times. And I think that there is, and one of the things I, I love about the precedent that has been set at All Souls is I can I can read poetry from the pulpit, and it it would be weird if I didn't do that. Um, 
Because I think for me, as I have grown in the way I'm present in the pulpit, one of the ways in which I've grown is is paying attention to how poets see the world and what they're able to do right. and being able to sort of slow down and they can take the blossom of a tree that most of us would just run by and they have a way of slowing down to not only call our attention to it, but then to call our attention and begin to see it in ways that are outside the realm of anything I, I would have ever seen before in a flower blossom. And I think that beginning to pay attention to that, even in the way in which being present with a scripture text and a story in the pulpit uh, and coming at it from, from that beginning place um, has been so, has been so life-giving and so wonderful for me. And then to sit under women and men who preach like that has just been an absolute gift as well. So yeah, Malcolm Guy would be the, would be the one for me. Well, I think, isn't he a freaking pipe smoking bearded Gandalf? Like that's all Uh part of his vibe, right? Like he's even, he's just owning it. He's, he has a she shed. I didn't even know I wanted a she shed till I saw that he has one that he calls the temple of peace where he writes poetry and sermons and smokes pipes and sounds, sounds quite delightful. I learned recently, I've been married 25 years and, and even saying this on this episode, I may run risk a foul of my wife. I w- learned in the last month that one of my wife's life ambitions is to smoke a pipe. So we're, we're currently on that journey. Yeah, That's good. We're chasing That's good that journey. Yeah. yeah, I believe it is. Uh, when, who comes to mind for you? Boy, um, I mean, definitely Fleming Rutledge. Yeah. Gosh. There's a, a, a way that she pierces through the fog. And I think, so I want to put this in two categories. I think for me, when we're talking about preaching, I actually don't often love the people that, um, are supposedly doing all the homiletical things just perfectly. Um, the, the sort of folks you'd listen to in a seminary class. I want people who've got it in their gut. I want people who are so moved by the pain of the world and by the power of the resurrection that they stand in the middle of that and they say with fervor and conviction, God. And so I, I put Fleming in that category. I put Will Willimon in that category. Mm. Yes. Um, He's scary to read. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I definitely don't always agree with him, but one thing I, I always feel is um, he's, he has pointed to God. I'm drawn to, um, as far as the reading though, I'm, I'm really, I'm drawn to, um, well, the other voice I have to say is Rowan, Rowan Williams. I mean, I, I don't, yeah, I don't even, can you say anything more? I just, I think he's for our time. Um, but then um, I think reading really good novels is may help help us learn how to to preach as much as anything and how to tell the gospel story. Yeah, I, I think that's it. So so for me, Fred Beekner, I'll take fiction or nonfiction. I, it's hard for me to decide, but his book, Son of Laughter, mm-hmm. uh, the novel of Jacob, I, I give that book out. I just tell people, I said, you'll know within one page whether you love it or yeah. hate it. That's It's that simple. Um, and for me, if I'm, if I'm thinking of a preaching craftsman, like when I think of Fleming Rutledge, her ability to make theology beautiful, I think there's, there's something there. It's not clinical with her. Like what you're saying when it, it has done its work in her, but Fred Craddock for me mm. remains 
the maestro. I can listen to the same sermons. It's almost like watching West Wing reruns. It's just a, a comfort and familiarity <laughs> listening to Fred Craddock preach. There's a sermon he preached called What Shall We Do With a Gift? Hmm. And it was preached at a homiletic convention to preachers for preachers. And I, I bet I've heard it 20 times and hmm. um, could probably almost recite it and it still moves me. So I'll have to look yeah. it up. Yeah, yeah, I'll send you guys the link. It's hard to find nowadays now that he's passed away. But um, yeah, just those those writers and those preachers that do the extra effort, even musicians like Andy Gallahorn and Andrew Peterson, I think, uh, in that group, they take that extra step to create beauty. I think that's what the world's starved of. Do you guys think that we're moving out of a leadership-centric church model and into a more poetic and beautiful one or is that still a ways off i wish we were yeah <clears throat> i mean i think there's a hunger and ache for it but i also think the efficient model hasn't hasn't died yet by far yeah you when you're obviously a gentle soul that might be the problem it might be that we need you to be more harsh and maybe grab some kind of weapon to bludgeon <laughs> us into beauty <laughs> Oh, there's enough. There's enough bludgeoning in this world. They don't need more from me. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Bliss, what's your take on that? Yeah, goodness, I, I think I'd echo win in that. I, I wish. I just think that there is a, uh, yeah, the alert. Not even the, um, right. There's there's a twofold alert to the efficiency. One is for the pastor leader that I can get to the place where I no longer need Jesus, and no longer need to give things away and to slow down and to pay attention and to be curious about what the spirit's up to in my own soul and the soul of those people who I'm in community with and are part of my community. Um, but then also the allure of the efficiency of belonging to a church that is highly efficient. It's just that, yeah, makes it very easy, makes it very easy. Um, and so, yeah, I wish, uh, but I don't think anytime soon. Hmm. It's interesting how many of us are fans of people like Dallas Willard, Eugene Peterson, but don't necessarily model our churches. Like this was the space Eugene lived in, the the artist, pastor, theologian space. I'm feeling a bit self-conscious when because I never met him. In 2016, I went on sabbatical and he was winding down his life and a number of friends of mine from Colorado Springs, Daniel Grothy and Glenn Packiam, uh, they had been in a regular habit of visiting him. So I wrote to him and asked if I could visit him in Montana. I'd lived 20 minutes south of him in the 1990s when I did an internship for a year and a half. And I still have the handwritten note he wrote back. So he said no. I mean, he was winding down, but I couldn't believe that he would take the time to write the note. You know, when you knew him, he was a mentor of yours. How in the world did he write so many notes? His level of fame was unbelievable, and he still took that time. How did he do that? I honestly don't know. He never had an assistant. Um, I mean, that's not entirely true. Jan helped him out a whole lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, that's still a marvel. It's a marvel to me, honestly. When I got the thousands of letters and got him down in my basement and was sorting through them. I thought, how in the world did he ever get anything else done? Um, it's remarkable. I, yeah, I was so, going to, Oh yeah, go ahead, please. I just was going to say that the, the way you, you sort of turned the story 
in that question about how many of us are drawn to the way of some of these sages, but we don't really often practice it. Um, a couple years before Eugene died, well, probably a little longer than that, a friend who runs a, a retreat center and had been a student of Eugene's, he had a number of retreats and had brought Eugene in to speak with pastors over the years. And that, that had stopped for a while. And, and he reached back out to Eugene and said, you know, hey, whenever you want to come and do another gathering for pastors, I'd love to put it together. And Eugene said, uh, I'm done talking to pastors. He said, they they come, they want, they say they want to hear what I have to say. And inevitably, I find them saying, if I actually did what you said, I would lose my job in six months. Um, now, the truth of the matter is he didn't at all stop talking to pastors. I mean, he was talking to pastors all the time. But it was one-on-one <laughs> or small groups. It wasn't in large gatherings. And I think the reason I shared that is I do, I do think there was some sadness on Eugene's part that he he felt like um, for all of his, his desire and longing for pastors to hear of a new way that, and that oftentimes we really were pretty committed to what we have been taught and often does work. It feels to me, I, I did a lot of work with domestic violence when I, I was on staff at a church in Las Vegas. And a lot of my time was people in domestic violence. It, it feels a little bit the same where people, pastors feel trapped. They don't see a way out. Like, show me, like I hear about another way, but can there really be another way? I, I wonder if that's if that's the revolution, the post-COVID revolution is there really can be an embodied way um, that doesn't really lead tightly into a question, but yeah, when I when I hear that pastors don't want it, I do have this visceral reaction where I'm saying I don't think that's it. I I think most of the pastors I think just feel stuck, and that's not an excuse, but yeah, yeah, I don't think it's true that they don't want it. And, and if I said that, that was mis misspoken. Um, I think I do think that oftentimes there's um there's a commitment to like safety and control. Yeah. And I also think that sometimes a lot of us who are pastors, what we hear in this supposed new way is, oh, go be like X, you know, go be like Dallas or go be like Eugene or go be like Fleming, which is not at all the point. Um, there's only one Fleming. There's only one Eugene. There's only one Dallas, Steve, you know, Steve and Wynn and Bliss. Um, but the deeper thing of a life that's lived toward God, a life that refuses the idols of our time and however it plays out in our context, um, a life of prayer, a life of scripture, um, a life of sacrament, um, lived out in our own personality. Yes, that's absolutely possible. <laughs> um, and if it's, if it's not, then we should stop reading our Bibles and stop preaching from them. Yeah. I do. So when there is some fire in that belly, I like that. That's, yeah, I like the, the provoking there. Um, Bliss, what would be a favorite Eugene Peterson book of yours that you've read? The one, well, I think my favorite is the one that I've read the most, which is A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which is his commentary on the Psalms of Ascent. And those Psalms, I think in, in my life with God and in our family's life with God, the Psalms of Ascent have been one of those 
kind of dog-eared pages in the Psalter that we have returned to time and time and time again. And I think the gift of Eugene, in so many ways, it's one of the reasons why I love and continue to to love the message is because there was just something so fresh about the way in which he saw God and saw scripture and understood life with God in a way that didn't feel superhuman, but actually felt really human. Like, Oh, like just loved by God human. Um, and so that's the book that I have probably read the most of his repeatedly and find myself and find myself going back to quite a bit. Um, because I think, right, there's the, the story Wynn writes about, uh, in the biography about Eric coming in, uh, Eugene's son coming in to get his dad for dinner yeah. and Eugene is on the floor praying in the prayer shawl. And I think that even goes back to the earlier comments and what is so powerful like that, like Eugene had multiple degrees when it came to languages and, and, and all those things and was brilliant in his own right. But for me, the, my experience of Eugene, when I hear stories like that, is like, oh, that's where that's where it's come from is, is you're reading the words of someone who has seen God face to face and um, has come out of it, not as a superhuman type of person, but as someone who is really in touch with their humanity and what it means to be fully human with God uh, and for God. And um, yeah. And so the along obedience in the same direction is one of those books that I think for me and in, in my story and interaction with you, like that has just what has really shined forth the most. So, Yeah. And then when you, you know, you knew each other well, it, it's, it's got to be surreal to then read the book of someone that you know personally. Is there a book for you that comes to mind that hits you differently than the others? It's probably still the first one I read, which is uh, Working the Angles, The Shape of Pastoral Integrity. I think that's the book that rescued me in some ways. Um, gave me a, a vocabulary, a vision of what it looked like to be a faithful pastor. And I still return to it regularly. Mm. I think for me, it's uh, the contemplative pastor. It, you know, he keeps, he keeps revisiting these similar themes over and over, but just the simple profound idea that my primary job as a pastor is to attend to God and let God attend to me. And, and then to live that, like to do that in front of people as is appropriate. I, I first read that in the goodness, I think the late 90s when I was a youth minister and and as a Bible college graduate and post-chaplain and a seminary student, somehow that was still revolutionary, that it mm. really was that simple. Um, I, I wonder, you know, when the book you wrote, Burning in My Bones, I do wonder if that is one of the books for our time, like, like people can read, because you really do open the door into Eugene's life, into his mind. It is a warts and all, like it's not a hagiography. It's a very frank account. Um, but it does cast that vision that I think pastors are longing for is to figure out how to actually carve out an enjoyable life with God while working for God. Um, do you have any other comment on the book uh, that you'd like to make before we move on to our final segment here? I think the only thing is my... My hope was that you, that people wouldn't just read about Eugene's life, but perhaps as much as is possible on a page that they might actually encounter Eugene. Because the real wonder of his life and 
was not his books or his public persona or his um his impact or translating the bible into 22 million copies it it really was it was what it was like to sit with him in a room and to encounter his presence and to realize you were with someone who was living well um someone who was deeply invested and engaged in this world but someone who's whose heart and mind and imagination was turned toward God. And when Eugene died, um, I was prepared. I'd seen him diminishing. But this, the deep sadness I felt was just knowing that he, he wasn't breathing in this world anymore. That there, there was a comfort in just knowing as crazy as things seemed or as confused as I would get about, uh, what's happening in our world and in the church. I knew that there was a guy named Eugene out there that was living the Eugene way. And, and so I hope that readers would just encounter a bit of what that would, that encounter, what that presence was like. gentlemen uh we've been circling around the topic the way we circle around the drain but really there's nothing left but for us to face it the gauntlet of anxiety questions so if you guys embrace yourselves and uh let's let's start with you I, i think one of the themes we've already been talking about on this episode is i think so many faith leaders feel a gap between what they believe about god and what they encounter themselves from god uh, is there a gap for you? If if there is, what is it? What what would be the gap for you? Ooh, I, I think that the the big gap for me is one of my great joys is to remind people just how deeply not only loved they are by God, but how much God delights in them, like just truly delights in them. And I am the one person that that is not true of. And I think that's the continual gap I always keep running into is believe it wholeheartedly for another, but I'm, I'm the one exception to that rule. So, yeah. Yeah. When, what about you? I, I constantly uh, want to echo again and again, how we can trust God with our life and we can abandon control. And then I really love to be in control. Yeah. Oh, very good. Um, one of the interesting things about the way anxiety works is if you notice it over time, you end up finding that you generally get anxious about the same things over and over again. What would be one leadership situation that you know is going to generate anxiety in your life? Like for me, it would be staff conflict for sure. That I just, that's a guarantee. If, if staff are in conflict with me or if they're in conflict with each other, I, I get anxious. Bliss, what would it be for you? Yeah, that's a good one. I think it's the, uh, it's usually whatever comment follows the, Hey, I've been talking to a lot of people and they say, <laughs> and it's sort of that, uh, I've learned to diffuse it by going, well, can you just for the, my own sake, tell me how many. Um, but I think that that kind of phantom strike and phantom crowd of, Oh, Hey, a lot of people are talking. 
Um, yeah, you yeah. you happen to be the subject, by the way. Yeah. We just thought, we'd yeah. Let you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah. When? How about yourself? Um, I think for me, it would be um, whenever someone says that my pastoral ministry or way or convictions uh, do damage to them. Um, sort of regardless of how we talk about it or, but just by mere existence that I'm a damage to them. Yeah. That goes back to that lightning rod idea we were talking about. There is something challenging about being the pastor that you, you have more power than you think you have. Mm. Uh, it, gosh, it gets tricky. All right. And then the question I ask every guest uh, when in your life do you feel most fully and completely loved? It's probably, I mean, the, it's actually an easy answer for me is whenever I am playing with my daughters. I think in that moment of whether we're wrestling or playing on the beach or reading a book that I, there's just, there, it's just hard to put into fully put into words of what it's like to be present in that space with them. Um, yeah. And just never, I've never doubted. I've never doubted it in that space. I have, uh, I would say whenever I'm in a moment of intense delight and presence with Miska, my wife in generally, but I would actually say today, because you're asking me today, um, just this last weekend, we made the decision to, um, help our youngest son move back to Charlottesville for his senior year in high school. And that's something I was absolutely unprepared for. Um, and so this morning before they left, I was just holding him and, uh, he was holding me and for really long, like way longer than you ever get with a teenager. And, um, I prayed over him and we shared some words. And I think in that moment there was really deep love. Hmm. That's poignant. Uh, thank you guys both. Wynn Collier and Bliss Spiller, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, and just sharing, obviously we, we had a meandering conversation. It it hit all the targets I was hoping for. So I just really appreciate you guys being willing to show up and talk us through transition and well-being, And of course the remarkable Eugene Peterson and, uh, for listeners, we'll have links in the show notes for those of you who want to follow bliss. He's a local lead pastor at all souls church in Charlottesville, Virginia. He's a, he's a craftsman when it comes to the way he thinks and, and communicates and, Win Collier will have links as well to win both as his work as a professor, but also some of his other resources. Because as he said, he's still a pastor, primarily to pastors um, and obviously ministry students. And, and that is a vocation that's desperately needed today. So we'll put those links in the show notes. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks for having us. So good to be here. For more resources, visit stevecuswords.com or missyoualliance.org. 